All right, before we get started, uh, I want to tell you a story, which I know is what old people say right before you get bored. But this is a story that has something to do with today's podcast. My freshman year of college, I was the music director of our campus radio station, KSMC. And there had been a, I don't know, a flood of some kind uh, over the summer. And when I got there, all of the albums, all the vinyl had been moved to a closet down the hall from the radio station. And my job, my first job as the MD was to get the vinyl back in the radio station. And there was a lot of it. So I knew it was an all-day job. So I took a Saturday and uh, just figured, well, this is what I'll be doing for the entire day. So I got there at 8 in the morning, and I started on the vinyl relocation project. And I'm moving stacks and stacks of vinyl from this weird dark closet down the hall and back into the radio station studio. And at one point, after a couple of hours, I noticed there was a bunch of vinyl on top of the shelf. And I reached up to pull some of it down, and an album from out of nowhere fell on my head. Doesn't sound like a very big deal. It wasn't. It was just an album. Didn't hurt. It was, uh, it was nothing. And I went to pick it up, and that album that fell on my head was Thelonious Monsters' album, Next Saturday Afternoon. Well, since it was a Saturday afternoon, I thought that was a message from the alternative college rock radio gods that I needed to listen to that album. So when I got all of the vinyl moved back into the studio, and by the way, at this point, it was like 3.30 in the afternoon. It started to rain. I was sweating. <laughs> and I had the task ahead of me of alphabetizing all of the albums. So I figured, all right. Let's listen to Thelonious Monsters next Saturday afternoon and uh, see what it's all about. And I put it on, and man, I mean, I listened to it about ten times in a row, front to back. The needle would hit that end, I'd turn it over, it hit the end, I'd turn it over, I kept doing it. I love that album. It just blew my brain wide open, especially the song Anymore this really slow moving ballad. And, um, you know, when you're in college and you don't really feel that people understand you because you're a guy who hangs out at the radio station, you're not in a fraternity, you're <laughs> a Jewish guy at a Catholic school, you're, <laughs> you're not, uh, you know, you're not turning a bunch of heads with your looks. You feel like an outsider. Yeah, that's me, by the way, in that story. And so... To hear a song like Anymore and to hear a couplet like people treat me with suspicion, don't know if I'm happy or if I'm sad anymore, uh, you know, it feels like that's about you. And it felt like it was about me. And it felt so powerful and so poignant and so immediate. And uh, what can I say? I love Thelonious Monster. That was the moment I fell in love with that band. And then a few months later, the Stormy Weather album came out, and that was just ridiculously good. And uh, that was it. For me, Bob Forrest, who's a singer of that band, he became one of my guys. He just became one of my heroes. And I learned so much about writing from listening to Thelonious Monster, and uh, the music just made me feel good. 
And that's what music's supposed to do. So why am I telling you all this? Why am I, why am I getting into the annals of, uh, of my college rock history? Well, because the monster is back. I'll tell you all about that in a second. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. So this is how it's done. I am the gun. Monster, a band which features my guest today on the program, Bob Forrest. Let me tell you a little bit about Thelonious Monster and Bob Forrest. Well, there isn't much I can tell you about Bob Forrest that wasn't already said and said perfectly in the movie Bob and the Monster. That documentary is essential watching. It's incredible. It's one of the best films about music I've ever seen. And it's one of the best documents about a musician I've ever seen. And not only that, it gets the essence of who Bob Forrest was and who he is at the same time. And through interviews with his friends like Anthony Kiedis and Flea of the Chili Peppers, the portrait of Bob Forrest is painted very clearly. As for Thelonious Monster, well, here's the deal. The L.A. punk band have put out six albums. Three of those came in the 80s. One of them came in the early 90s. Another one came in 2004, and then 16 years later, here comes the new one, Oh, That Monster. In addition to his work with Thelonious Monster, Bob Forrest has put out several solo albums, as well as an album under the name The Bicycle Thief. He was a drug counselor on Celebrity Rehab and Sober House. He put out the memoir Running with Monsters. He hosts the Rehab Bob podcast, as well as the This Life with Dr. Drew podcast, and he founded Hollywood Recovery Services with Shelley Sprague. He's been busy. Now, as a songwriter, Bob is one of the best. His lyrics are scruffy and scrappy and literate and streetwise. And as a singer, his phrasing is inimitable. He knows how to hold consonants, throw vowels into the stratosphere, and then wrap them both together in a way that you just can't get out of your head. Okay, so that's Bob Forrest. By the way, I want to say it again. Watch the movie Bob and the Monster, and you'll get a real taste of who this guy is. So... Because Bob is such a well-documented guy, I'm going to tell you something you can't find on Wikipedia or in the Bob and the Monster movie. 
back when the Bicycle Thief album, You Come and Go Like a Pop Song, came out. That must have been 2001. I should check on that, but I'm almost sure it was. I was hired to write the bio for the album. Now, typically, that's just a page or a page and a half. No big deal. And when you do these things, you talk to the artist for like 20 minutes, and that's all you really need. But for the Bicycle Thief album, I had like several hour-long phone calls with Bob, and they were some of the coolest chats I've ever had. 90% of it didn't even make it into the bio. We talked about the jam and Paul Weller and, uh, I don't know, butterflies, and he told me stories about hanging out with Joe Strummer and uh, growing up in L.A. and, and his, his complicated family history, and it was incredible. Bicycle Thief were heading up here to San Francisco for an album release show at Rockin' Java on The Hate, and I just asked Bob if he would consider coming by the university where I teach and chat with my class about writing. He said, sure. And the next week, there he was, pulling into St. Mary's College in Moraga in Flea's red SUV. And uh, we, we walked to my class, and he sat down, played some songs, answered some questions, told some stories, and it was just a perfect thing. And it was a generous thing, done by a guy who did it because he cares about people, and he likes people, and he believes in people. Bob Forrest is the real deal. And once you start talking to him, you wish it would never end. And part of that is his attitude. Part of that comes from the stories he tells from the life he's lived. But most of that comes from the fact that he's one of the most genuine people on this planet. After we chatted for this podcast, we texted a bit. And whether you're trading texts or chatting or listening to his band, Bob Forrest reminds you that humanity is a beautiful, beautiful thing. So enjoy this chat with me and Bob Forrest of Thelonious Monster right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. much going on in the world you know if you're paying attention it's a fascinating time to be alive and frightening yeah it's right i'm reading this book um uh about uh what is it called the uh dustin kruger effect or whatever where everybody's stupid what is it yeah the kruger right yeah <laughs> and uh and it really is true it's frightening how true it is you know when I was a kid, everyone everyone kind of knew a lot of good basic. We all had the good basics, I call it. The basics. The basics of life, the basics of art, the basics of music, the basics of politics. And now nobody has the basics. They've got like two generations with no basics. And, and you argue over what the basics are. You know what I mean? Right. Right. Like, I don't know, I, you know, you can go on and on, but the basics are like the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, Bob Dylan, Neil Young, mm-hmm. Pink Floyd, you know, the Sex Pistols, The Clash, Black Flag, The Replacements, you know, this, the, the, the Ramones, it's the basics. Right. And now it's just like, oh, no, LCD sound system is better than any of that. Like, no, they're not. <laughs> no, they're not. Yeah. They're, good. they're a good band. I like them. You know what I'm saying. Yeah, they're not one of the basics. 
Uh, they're, not the no, they're they're on the specialty menu. They're not the Beach Boys, let's say that. They're they not the made, Beach Boys. They haven't they, made pet, pet sounds. And what's interesting is the 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 bands since I like I kind of left music in 2000 say till till like now, I guess. So in that 20 years, all the great artists seem to not respect that the mantle had been given to them. Mm. Right, and their band breaks up, like White Stripes, or or they they decide they don't want success, like Tom York or something. Like it's just like no. Now you wonder why rock is is no one even knows anything about it anymore. Kids only know hip hop and country. It's because the people that this great art form was handed off to didn't love and respect it enough, in my opinion. I feel like a band like Green Day kind of did though. Like they didn't change the lineup. They didn't yeah. change, right? They stayed pretty, they, they understood the responsibility they'd been given. Right. And, and they're like, they're like an older band. I, I, you know, I've known Green Day since 92, 93, 94. They've been around a long yeah. time. Right. Yeah. I'm talking about that, that, that gap of when I got sober in 96, that 2000, you know, when, when, when Kid A, for example, came out, when, when, cause I got, I didn't listen to music for a long time. And then all of a sudden I, you know, the Benz, I got sober, the radio had the Benz came out and, um, <clears throat> Kid A, when they made, when Radiohead made Kid A, I said, this is like Bowie Low. These guys are the fucking Kings. They're the fucking Kings. And for some reason he didn't care about the responsibility of being King. Right. My dad used to always say, you know, to whom much is given, much is expected. Mm. Right. That was a motto in my house. My sisters and I were taught all the time. Like if we complained about something, uh, you know, that something didn't go right or blah, blah, or mom didn't do this or whatever. He would say to whom much is given, much is expected. Right. Uh, I guess that's probably considered like a class A trauma childhood child trauma right now if you said that if, if, if i said to my four-year-old you know stop whining too much is given much is expected she could probably call the police and have me put in jail <laughs> right but that's what my dad used to say and that that like you know it, there's a lot to that statement be grateful there's a responsibility that comes with being well-educated and coming from an upper-middle-class background. Well, there's a great responsibility that comes with being the greatest songwriter musician in the world. Mm-hmm. And you should want to live up to that instead of say you don't care about it. Right, right, or right. Make, or you want to make an electronic record, a <laughs> dance record. But what about Lou Reed? Like when he was fucking around with metal machine music, I mean, that was sort of like an abdication of responsibility, kind of. Well, he was, well, he was, he's, he was a, he was a twisted man. I kind of was acquainted to him. So he, um, he, he felt like that RCA wasn't serving him as an artist, right? He had, he had what a lot of people have, which is his best friends were more successful than him. Right. I have, I have that. <laughs> right. You got to fucking get over that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he's always looking at Bowie or Mick Jagger or, or, you know, and, and even the, even Iggy, I mean, even Iggy was more successful than Lou Reed. Yeah. So he's, 
he's got this chip on his shoulder. And so fuck you to RCA was to hand in metal machine music. That's what I had always heard. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. But what about someone like Bono? I think Bono recognized it. I think that, um, I think Joe Strummer recognized it. I, I really, I think those Bruce, guys saw it. Joe, Joe recognized it. He was a friend of mine. He recognized it. He knew how much we all looked to him, right? And he was humble. And, but he knew he was, he, he had opinions and he didn't mind sharing them. I always mm-hmm. tell this story. Right after 9-11, I, I played a show with Joe and he, he liked to <clears throat> stay up rather late. I don't know. I mean, I was sober at the time, but you're fucking hanging out with Joe Strummer till four o'clock in the morning. What, are you going to leave? You got something better to do? So he's all drunk and he's smoking weed and he's just like, and he always called me Thelonious. And I, I never questioned why he called me Thelonious. I don't know if he thought that was my name. I never, when Joe Strummer calls you anything, you just answer, right? And he goes, ah, Thelonious, listen to me, man. I fucking grew up with these motherfuckers. I know fucking them. I fucking born in Turkey. I fucking live there, man. They fucking hate rock and roll. These religious fanatics, they fucking, they want people like you dead. They want gay people dead. They want gypsies fucking dead. You got to fucking deal with these people. And I said, can you just stop saying this? I can't believe that Joe Strummer and George W. Bush are asking to do the same thing. <laughs> and he goes, man, I'm not talking about going into Iraq or fucking Africa, you know. I'm talking about these motherfuckers, these religious fanatics, man. Right? And, it, and it, it's true. I didn't know because I was all caught up in anything W wants. I want the opposite. Right. 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 And here's this well-informed, his dad was, a, you know, his dad was a, the, the ambassador to Turkey. Right. 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 So he knows that area since he's born. And he's like, listen, man, the only thing these people understand is the boot. They only understand power. You're not going to negotiate with them. Right. And it was proven to be true. There's not a lot of negotiating with uh, bin Laden and, and Taliban. <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and so, so, and this is my thing about, you know, this is like, I've done like four interviews since these two records have come out. And I started realizing the last one earlier this afternoon, like I say what I think. And it was like a, a guy I, I got the sense like he had never talked to a musician that says what he thinks because everybody's so guarded nowadays. Nobody dares say anything that might be attacked on Twitter or misinterpreted by right. me too, or misinterpreted by BLM or, or get you in trouble. So nobody says anything. Right. And so, and I said some things, I said, you know, America is moved by uh, public opinion. That's what Martin Luther King was a PR man. He was trying to show the suburban soccer moms that we call them nowadays the indignity of the South, the unfairness and the injustice of the South. And Martin Luther King knew that if white suburban soccer moms see what they do to us when we're just asking for the right to vote, they will be repulsed and they will join us and we will get our rights. Mm-hmm. 50 years later, you've got BLM, right? They did it. 
if you've seen the polling towards uh, racial profiling, race relations in America, the police shootings, it has it been a watershed moment in American history about white suburban soccer moms being in line with Black Lives Matter. And almost as if like a, a traumatized child always revivifies the trauma, they come up with defund the police and the whole soccer moms go, what the fuck are you talking about? Right. 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 You had them. This is horrible what happened to Trayvon Martin. It's fucking murder what happened to George Floyd. Murder by a policeman. And we saw it. And we stood up and we said, no more of this. Right? And then a fringe group, I believe, started saying, yeah, we need to defund the police and abolish the police. Right. And you just shot yourself in the foot. Right. They blended and, and, then, and then it corroded the message. It corroded the message. And so then that led to, like, Trump, a guy who... Here's an interesting thing about Trump. I, I, I come from politics. My dad was in politics. My family's in politics. I grew up in politics. So I, I understand politics in a way most people don't. It's not my opinion. It's just the way politics is. So really important, significant polling is that's so unique about Trump is uh, plus 16 about is your family better? Are you and your family better off than you were four years ago? He's plus 16. Is the country better or worse than it was four years ago? Negative 20. He's under what he should be walking to reelection. Right. He should be. And any, anybody that thinks it's going to be a landslide is like living in a, parallel universe no it's not gonna be a lens um um so the idea is we have him on the ropes let's not talk about defund the police or transgender bathrooms right now please let's not talk about that though i think we need all people's bathrooms you know what i mean meaning what in los angeles they don't have any bathrooms no one can publicly urinate in the city of los angeles because we have so much homeless they just locked all the bathrooms same here in san francisco San Francisco, same thing. So, so yeah, we want we're going to get to the bathroom stuff, and we're gonna and we're gonna get to we're gonna get to uh, police reform. You can call it defund the police; it's fine after the election. <laughs> right, that's fair. <laughs> that's safer. <laughs> and so, so, but I I, I think Biden's going to squeak it out. I, th- I think he's going to squeak it out, but. I hope so. I, I, I'd rather be talking to you than watching uh, Trump's event right now. That's for sure. Um, you know the people that really put Trump in power hate him also. You know that. Yes, yes. But they're That's getting what, what they so wanted. Huh? They're getting what they wanted, but, they, but he, he's not what they want. No, but they, everybody thinks they want the capital gains tax. Listen, to, to uber-rich people, 10% of $100 million is not that much money. No. It's it's the society, this entitled society where every snowflake is perfect and everybody has to be, you know, the society and the way that it's evolved over the last 20 years is, it, it, it's a lot of, Trumpism is a reaction to that. Mm-hmm. I have friends that are highly educated, very successful people. They just said, listen, you know, I can't stand the guy. I fucking think he's an asshole, but anything to slap back against this bullshit. You know, and you live in Berkeley, you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. Berkeley. I, you know, 
Berkeley, where they don't let conservative voices speak. That's the free speech capital of America. That's not that's Maoist China. That's not America. Yeah, well, it was a it was a voice they didn't want. <laughs> so they, voice, yeah, it's that Nino guy, whatever his name. That was, was. Milo Yannanopoulos. Yeah, Milo. I had him on my podcast. Yeah, yeah like, and Ann Coulter, I think, as well. But yeah, I mean, that was later, so. and she—I know her. She promoted herself. She wanted to be banned so she could go talk about it. Yes, and rave, fundraise about it. But that Nino kid—he's just a huckster. He's just an attention getter. He doesn't even—you know—like he doesn't even know half the shit he's talking about. No, he's just fat. And, and an excellent debater or or uh, moderator could expose that in like twenty minutes, right? But yeah. instead, they ban him and make him a hero. Right? Yeah, it, it gives him a charge that he wouldn't normally have had. I just, I'm not scared of ideas. I never have been scared of ideas. I'm not scared. Uh, because I think dumb ideas in the light of day are shown to be dumb ideas, right? Yeah. But, but banning dumb ideas makes dumb ideas powerful, right? It right. gives them power. You know, I'm a big, a big believer in Lenny Bruce. Like, Lenny Bruce had a bit about the N-word. Now you can't even say the word. But he just felt like we need to use this word over and over again until it, it doesn't have the power to make children cry, right? What's interesting is his, his, his prophecy about that word is true. It's probably used more now in the last 20 years than it ever was for, you know, 50 years. Mm-hmm. But it's not allowed to be used by certain people. Right, white people. Right, it's like the reclaiming of that word. Right, it's interesting censorship, uh, stupidity, ignorance. It's all it's all interesting. And so I made this record, the Thelonious Monster record, has bits and pieces of my opinion about things. And then the Bicycle Thief record really kind of pointed out what I saw coming. I didn't even know that I was seeing it coming. I was kind of describing. Uh, like a punk rock version of what I thought might happen in a song called Stone that's on yeah. there. Um, you know, we just did a live streaming thing of when the album came out, the Bicycle Thief album. And I was, first time I'd sung that song Stone in probably 15 years or something, 10 years. Um, they're pretty prophetic that, that everybody's bored and with hate and just getting stoned and don't give a fuck about each other because that's that's a real meaning of that chorus is you think about you and i'll think about me and we'll just stay stoned and that's about apathy and about not caring about your neighbors i i really recognize that is i i always i'm a friendly person i know i know the i know my landlord al wachtel lives next door and this other other professor lives across the street works at laverne um uh ellen harper ben's mom lives next door to me on the right i see her and her husband um this therapist couple live across the street we talk i know my neighbors i know their kids i know their grandkids i know their dogs right that's why i choose to live in this kind of suburban in claremont it's, it's called this town outside of la because you should know your neighbors and i realize i lived in beechwood canyon in hollywood for 10 years i know anybody nobody wants mm. to know anybody nobody wants to know anybody so how right? do you know people who don't want to be known you 
that's the problem with our society. This right. is, is that the, this kind of, I have to know your politics or what music you like or, or who you vote for or this or that or the other thing before, um, before I can talk to you, right? You, you could go to someone's house, Bob, and you could, while they're getting something, you could look at their record collection and go, all right, this person's cool. <laughs> <laughs> books, books, and their books. Oh, their books, books, right, right, and go. All right, I this person's all right. Story. I always tell this. You know, I tell this story like I, um, I, I, I met this girl, and we went back to her house from a concert or something, and we were going to go somewhere else. So I, I was always on drugs. I didn't really care about sex that much. So she was getting money or something, so we could go do drugs. And I was in her house, and she was doing whatever she was doing, and we were going to leave. And it was like midnight or one in the morning or something and i looked at her books and she had a bunch of like un, you know like like kind of not very thought inspiring novels right and and then i looked at her records and she had some bands i didn't like and i remember just my whole excitement about even though she was going to get money to go do drugs i was like i don't know if i want to do this <laughs> so she's she's she was, you know, a wonderful gal, and she was buying drugs. And I, by looking at her books and looking at her records, yeah. I was like, I don't know if I want free drugs and hang out with a beautiful girl. I don't know that I want this. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's weird because the, the hierarchy of, like, drugs are more important than sex, but a good record collection are, is more important than drugs. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's true. It's a weird... It's a weird, maybe we're dinosaurs and it just doesn't make any sense to anybody else. But, um, you know, it's just like when we made the Bicycle Thief record, it was the era of the new uh, singer-songwriters, right? Right. And I just wasn't impressed by any of them. I mean, I don't want to name names, but they were just really not very good. But it was new and it's novel and it's, you know what I mean? So singer-songwriter stuff was back in, kind of hippie culture was back in. And I was just like, whoa. Like, and John Pashante said something funny. We went and saw this movie of, the first Coachella movie was like a couple songs by every band that had played Coachella in the first 10 years. And we went and saw it and we were driving home and I go, what do you think? And he goes, I think people don't know how to write songs anymore. And, uh, and I said... Yeah, I mean, there's a couple good songs in there. And he goes, yeah, a couple good ones. But he goes, it, think, it seems like they just pick a genre and then just become really, really good at sounding like Joy Division or sounding like a hippie folk singer or sounding like 70s rock or, you know, that's so many bands. I, I don't like naming bands and then you say, oh, you talk shit about so-and-so. But everybody I know, generally, I know. generally get the gist of it. Like, it's great if you pick the 70s sound like a certain girl band has chosen to do from here in LA, but write good songs doing it. Just, right. just, just sounding like a seventies record with like kind of mediocre lyrics and, and harmony singing that doesn't really have any soulfulness to it. Like, yeah, you're going to get, you know, you're going to get liked by some critics, but I mean, it doesn't, you got to work harder. You got to work well, harder at songwriting. I mean, I'll, I'll name a name. I, I always felt that Interpol was a band that... Joy all, they're the ones, they're the Joy Division. Rockers. Right, right. There's the band, like everything's in place. They look great. They sound great. Everything, they do everything great except write great songs. <laughs> I'm glad you said that instead of me. That, was the, Joy, that was the Joy Division band. Oh, that was the one. Okay, that's fine. I'll say it. Right. I mean, you, do you think that um, 
getting back to responsibility, you, what I've always loved about you, I've, I've been on, <clears throat> I've listened to you since 89. So I've been on board for a long time. And I, there's never been, for me, a feeling that you ever doubted your ability. Like you, no, I think I well, you always knew that you were pretty, pretty badass. But my question to you is, do you feel that you kind of abdicated your own responsibility to your own talent for a, t- for a certain period of yeah, time? Yeah, I certainly and, did. Well, yeah. let me, let's talk about where that comes from, right? So I didn't okay. know. Uh, and it, it's very strange that um, Anthony Kiedis, my best friend, the Chili Pepper singer, said, Bob, you really can, you're a really good singer. You should form a band. Right. This is when the Chili Peppers, they didn't have a record deal yet, but they were a band and we were living together. And he would always say, you should form a band. Right. How crazy is that? That your friend just says, you should form a band. You're a really good singer. This is like 1883, right? This is like yeah, Yeah. I don't think kids say that to each other anymore. I don't think people are really friends anymore. Because that gave me so much confidence because he was known as like the coolest guy in Hollywood. That's why me and Flea latched onto him, whatever. And here he's telling me, you're a good singer, man. Like, because we would sing along with Graham Parsons records. We love to shoot speed and listen to Graham Parsons, by the way. I don't know what you think the Chili Peppers are. It's Graham Parsons. It's methamphetamine. So, and he, and we would sing along, right? And he would go, God, you're a good singer. You should form a band. Then... Um, uh, I went and saw the replacements on the Hootenanny tour. And so Anthony saying, you should form a band and be a singer. And me seeing the replacements, just like a train wreck with just so much confidence. Like they were so confident of themselves and they literally were awful. They were just terrible. <laughs> the combination of like, well, how, how bad could you have to, could, would you have to be if you just act confident like the replacements do, like really, like they were a phenomenon, the replacements. I, I think people, it's never properly been, I never saw them be good, right? I saw them be good for like four songs one time. Okay. And, and that was, Thelonious Monster was playing the lingerie in Hollywood and we had been doing drugs the night before they had played the Palomino and then they were going to, uh, somewhere Riverside or something to play a show and and so then they left to go and then while while we, I was at the laundry that Tommy and Paul came walking in and go and I said what's good what's going on with how you get canceled it was like 10 o'clock at night and they're like no they wouldn't let Tommy drink so we said fuck you we're not playing and he goes and Paul goes can we play here and I said I'm sure you can and, he, and so they played on our equipment before we played and they played it's the first time they played Can't Hardly Wait, which is on the uh, Please to Meet Me album. Right. And a couple other songs. And there it is great. But they only play like four songs and then turned it over to us or whatever. Right? And, and it was just incredible. So, but I saw them probably 50 times and it was always a train wreck. And it was always, so they were this inspiration of like, just be cool, be confident and, and fucking do it. So it's a combination of Anthony saying you're a good singer and seeing the replacements and thinking like, how are they so confident? Like they literally sound like shit. Right. <laughs> and, and they'd make a joke out of it and they'd stop a song midway through and say, oh, we don't know how it goes. And whatever. So, 
so then when we started first be, being Thelonious Monster, the first week that we were rehearsing, I wrote that song, Yes, Yes, No, it's called. It's on the first album. And I just remember, I'm a big, big fan of William Burroughs and Bowie and, and you know, and poetry and, uh, and, and Lawrence Ferlinghetti. And somebody who's heard us play that song said, that's so minimal. It's so cool, but it's so passionate. Like, I know how to put words together, right? That person was Tomato to Plenty, the singer of the Screamers, right? He said he loved the song, Yes, Yes, No. It's to the point. It's fucking very direct. And everybody loved that song. It was, it was like literally the second song I ever wrote in my life. So when you get positive affirmations from your friends and positive support and encouragement and inspiration, you can do miraculous things. I think we have a society that is not inspiring to, to each other, not compassionate towards each other, feel jealous. It's an interesting thing. There's this take that, there's this takeaway on 80s rock that we were all so jealous of each other that's just not true. It's not true. I don't know how it got created. You understand? Yeah. It's not true. Perry Farrell and, and Axl Rose and me and Anthony were all friends. We all saw each other all the time. There was no competition. There was one thing in 1987 the LA Weekly Music Awards were like this big deal here in LA. I don't know. You probably had the BAM Music Awards. We had the BAM, yeah. 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 So the, it was a big deal, right? And I remember the nominees were me, Perry, Anthony, Axel, and one other singer I forget. And I remember I talking to Axel in the lobby, and he goes, he goes, uh, you're the one, every, you're the critics, darling. You're, you're going to win. And I was like, dude, you're the greatest singer anybody's ever seen. You're going to win. And he goes, and then Perry walked by and he goes, and we both went, he's going to win because he's the coolest guy in LA. And then Anthony won. And we were, I looked over at Axel, like he was like five feet old, people over from me. I was like, how the fuck can that be? Like, it's like either me or him or Perry. But Anthony scooped it up and he walked up there and got that award. I'll never forget it with me and Axel. We're just cracking up like, Holy shit. So this portrayal of all this jealousy and all this, you know, that's the modern society and the pitchfork world projecting itself on what the 80s were like. Yeah. It wasn't like that. No, the only time I ever heard about anything was the the alleged, which is apocryphal, story of Motley Crue and the Misfits maybe having a street brawl of some kind. I don't know if that actually... There was, fight, there was fights. Me and Axel got in a big fist fight one time. Oh, really? Like a, He beat the shit out of me. He's a scary motherfucker when he gets angry. <laughs> don't... That's a note for your fans. Do not make Axel Rose mad. Why did you make <laughs> Axel Rose mad? I didn't. My girlfriend did. So he was playing... And she was all drunk, and you know, she liked to have a few cocktails. And I was upstairs, I wasn't even watching them. There was this two story club in Hollywood called Raji's. I was upstairs drinking, and somebody came up and told me, like, Axel just cracked your Sabrina over the head with the mic stand. And I was like, What? I went down there, and she was like, kind of had a red knot on her head. And I was like, What's going on? And, um, and she was kind of drunk and she said, fuck him, he sucks, he fuck him. You know, she didn't like him or whatever. 
And so they, they were like winding it down. I waited two songs and I said, what did you fucking do to her, dude? You, you know, said those things that you say in the 80s that you can't say nowadays because it's right. homophobic. Um, and he took a swing at me and I, we got into it. We were fist fighting and he got me and he it went on for quite a while. And, uh, and, and then I see him the next day at Canners, like this restaurant that we all used to eat at. And he's sitting there and I was, I got seated like one thing behind him across from him. And he looked over and he goes, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm okay. And he goes, dude, she was spitting on me. You know, she was spitting on him. It was okay? <laughs> no, I said, dude, you can't hit girls over the head with a mic stand. Right. And he goes, I know, I know. Uh, so... Anyways, this idea that the 80s was some competition or whatever. It was just no. a bunch of traumatized people that joined together in this world where, you know, magical things happen. The fucking ritual of the habitual is a magical piece of art. Yeah. Sweet Child of Mine is a beautiful song. It's so beautiful. You know, Give It Away is an anthem for how you should live your life. Right. And somehow it just got transferred to how much money everybody made and how famous they are and all that kind of stuff. That's the modern world. I always say, when I was a kid, my dad got the LA Times every day my entire life. I've got the LA Times every day for 59 years. I get it every day delivered to my house. And it used to, it told you what the best movies of the weekend were. Like Chinatown or Night Moves with Gene Hackman or this movie or that movie. And they gave you reviews, great reviewers told you, this is a great movie. This is an incredible piece of art. In the late 1980s, it became how it became this list of how much money a movie made. I always took that as something very interesting. It used to be whether a movie was good or bad. And all of a sudden, why should the society care how much a movie made? Right. Shouldn't only the investors care about that? Interesting kind of cultural phenomenon that I observed. Like, why would, why would anybody care how much money a movie made? Well, we have an idiocracy society that's become dumber and dumber over time. Mm-hmm. And they want to be number one. And they want to be the best. And they want to go see a movie that's the most money-making, right? It's crazy to me. Because I, I don't know, because I have an average IQ or whatever. But people, you know, I'm big on this, on this kind of thing of like, of like, IQ doesn't mean smart. It means your, your capacity to learn. Right. If your capacity to learn is low, you're going to get what you got now, which is a bunch of opinions and in the face that like, I say right now our society is, well, my ignorance is equal to your knowledge, right? How can you have a society like, how can you take a society like that seriously? So that's why Trump doesn't bother me. He's the president that, you know, majority of Americans deserve. He's, you know, that's what they want. And Mike Judge, this great, you know, cartoonist, filmmaker, who did Beavis and Butthead, you know, this guy, Mike Judge. And and Idiocracy. yeah, he well, that's what I was going to talk about. I didn't yeah. know you knew it. There's a movie called Idiocracy he made. Brilliant. It is America. Yeah. Instead of a wrestler, you got a reality TV star as the president. 
And he, and you know, here's the thing that I know, what caused Trump is not going away. Ignorance. Ignorance and a lack of, of, of cognitive thinking, right? Lack of comprehending things. So there's worse than Trump coming. Worse than Trump is coming, is my opinion. And that's why on the new album, I say, I'm just going to move to Spain. I don't know that it's going to be Spain, but that sounds good in a song. It sounds like John Lennon. <laughs> right. Spain is, it's a metaphor, it's a metaphorical locale. Yeah, I never, I mean, I think about leaving the U.S. all the time, but I never think of Spain, but in the song, Spain sounds best. Saying I'm going I'm to take my kids and run off to Holland instead of seeing yeah. You know, or, or New Zealand. New Zealand is another one. To the place that no one knows. Never better watch it go. Oh, yeah. Don't you wonder when you're told. There's no above and no below. Oh, yeah. Disappear, disappear. Disappear, disappear. Disappear, disappear. Disappear, disappear. Getting back to your your prowess, you never doubted your prowess. Your friends certainly helped you think no. about that. But did you feel 
And I know, obviously, we've talked about this in the past. And it's very oh, that, about- I, that my responsibility to it. So, yeah. yeah. When, you get, when you start getting compared to Bob Dylan and John Lennon and, and Sid Barrett and, like, your heroes and idols, yeah, you get frightened by it and you want to live up to it. I think it fucked with me for a while. Yeah. But I found my footing with it eventually. But that's hard. When you think about it, there's there's been a long lineage of people proclaim the next Bob Dylan. I was yeah. just one for some short period of time from 89 to 90 or something. There was John Prine was the first one, I think. Or maybe Chris Christopherson was the first one. And uh, also, I mean, Steve, <laughs> yeah, it was Stevie Forbert. He was, he was one of them. Steve Forbert, right? Right. Um, uh, Marshall Crenshaw. Crenshaw. I mean, there's a long list of people that were the next Dylan or the next yeah. this or the next that. It's a good list. And, and yeah, it, it just means you're a good songwriter, right? Right. But, but, you know, how do you live up to that? How do you, how does Bob Dylan even deal with it? Like, who even knows? But uh, I, I tell you, the greatest Bob Dylan story, I'm kind of a fanatic about him. He, Ben Montench is a friend of mine. He's a keyboard player in Tom Petty's band. And they're playing in Italy in 1987 or 88. And, um, you know, you never knew what you were going to get. You didn't know what songs he was going to say, play. You had a list of like eight. Can you imagine you got a list of like 80 songs, you know, and he's just going to turn around kind of drunk and name a song. And <laughs> he might not even sing the lyrics to it. I mean, it was pretty chaotic being in Bob Dylan's band. Yeah. And so... Um, there's a moment and, and Benmont's got this vantage point because he can see the profile of Dylan and Dylan's looking at the audience and he's not saying anything and he's not turning to the band and starting a song. He's not doing anything. He's just looking back and forth across the audience, kind of spaced out. And Benmont thought like, is he having a stroke? What's happening? What, what is he? You know, it was really weird for like three minutes. He did that with silence. Like there was no applause. He was just kind of in this weird moment after the concert ben Lund said what what happened there after so-and-so song or what what, what what's what was going on are you okay and he's like yeah no i had i had a realization and ben Lund said what's what and he goes that i'm bob dylan and i should be good fucking <laughs> 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 great is that let me tell you what he set out and did the next record he makes is Oh Mercy. The record after that is Time Out of Mind. Right. I mean, he had an epiphany that he's Bob Dylan and he should be good. He should stop fucking around like he's been fucking around for 10 years. Or longer. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, right. I mean, he had a, he had a pretty a, a long period of I don't know what the hell was going on. Yeah, from street legal to like to I mean, slow train crossing was good. Yeah, slow Empire, Empire Burlesque had a couple. Slow of moments, train. Yeah, right? um, but but never 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 a full album's worth of 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 anything worthy of the Bob never never. Right? Um, Empire Burlesque has Shooting Star. That song that song Shooting Star. So Shooting Star tonight, and I thought of you. 
Uh, you know, one of my favorites is on one of his worst albums, Brownsville Girls on Knocked Out Loaded. Knocked Out Loaded is literally unlistenable. It's terrible. And I'm a Dylan fanatic. It's a terrible but record. Brownsville Girl is one of his 10 greatest songs. And he didn't it. even write the lyrics. Sam Shepard did. And then there's also, uh, I love that one. Also, I think Neighborhood Bully is on the one before that. Which is, that's uh, yeah, Neighborhood Bully is on Joker, man. I, yeah, I mean, on inf- Infidels. Infidels, yeah. So, yeah. so here yeah. it is. I'm being compared to Dylan, and I know everything about Dylan. I'm a Dylan fanatic. And so it kind of throws you for a loop. But I was, I was trying too hard, and then I found my footing, and then I kind of fell off with drugs. But when I got sober the first song I wrote was one called Max Jill called. And I knew from the incident I wrote it, like I, I still got it. I could still fucking do this. And I hadn't been able to earlier. It was a real struggle. And it was all that Bob, next Bob Dylan kind of the thing that had mind fucked me or whatever. Right. And so, so I write Max Jill called and I'm like, Holy shit. And then within two weeks I wrote serial song. Uh. Um, and then, you know, when you write Serial Song, you're the one who wrote it. It's kind of otherworldly because it doesn't feel like you wrote it. It feels like the universe wrote it and gave it to you. Right. It comes so fast, like literally every verse. Okay. And, um, and in 15 minutes, and you're just thinking, like, how the fuck did that happen? And, and then when that came out, everybody just zeroed in on that song about how um how it really described drug addiction which was what i was trying to do yeah i want to describe it not in this victim way just in a more like a reporter way like a factual way because i felt like lou reed has described it in a reporter way what the first experience is like I wanted to describe what the 3,486th experience was like. But you, you also, in that song, you describe it also in the quotidian way where it's like, this is what it's like for in a day, on a day-to-day basis of like, here's a bowl of cereal and it's a challenge to eat it. Um, I didn't even eat it. Right. And it was like, so it, yeah, I mean, it's a really, it's such a brilliant song because it sort of gives that, that angle, which I don't think had been given before. It but, hadn't been given before and it no. seemed so easy to do. And then I've tried to do that with other subjects that I care about. It's not easy to do to just nothing, you know, like, like Dragnet, like nothing but the facts, right? It's really hard to do. And if anything, on the new record, we have a song called Buy Another Gun. Where the verses, I'm just trying to say, like, that's literally what people are thinking. Like, when there's a school shooting, that the teachers should just have guns and everything will be okay. Like, like, really? That's what you think? Kids should have Teflon backpacks? Really? That's, That's ignorant. That's just stupid. How do you explain to your kid that you're going to have a Teflon backpack and then put this over your heart so you don't get shot? Like my kid, you know, a lot of the parents, like the parents are split. I have two kids in school, right? Well, they're not in school now, but, but parents are split over, you know, the, the school shooting thing. So on the one hand, because they have school shooting shelter in place, um, practice drills, just like they used to when I was a kid, if a nuclear bomb hits, right? It's a little different that a bomb is going to maybe hit you, right? Then your classmate is going to hunt you down and shoot you. Totally different. And they act like it's the same thing. It's not the same thing. We need to talk about 
how children get to that lost place. And this is why we're all connected. So if you see somebody who's feeling left out or being bullied, help them. That's how you prevent school shootings. Not by hiding under a desk and locking in place and practicing it. That's not going to prevent you because the kid who's going to do the shooting is going to know exactly what you're doing. Exactly. <laughs> right? Right. I right. said that immediately. I'm like, it's cool. It's like, okay, well now we just told the shooter where everybody is. <laughs> right. And also that kid has been emotionally hiding under that vent for, for the longest time anyway. Yeah. Um, it, it's just crazy how we think how to, of solving problems these days. Love is a way of solving problems. Also, truth and honesty and, and bare knuckle, you know, resolving it is, is how you resolve problems. Not by, you know, t- kick gloves, everybody's a snowflake, everybody's no. important. I'm like, no, if everybody's important, why are some people don't have food to eat before school? Right. Kids know it's a lie right away. My son was, I think, he's in second grade. He was in second grade, so he was like seven. And he said, Daddy, are we rich? Like, that's not something you want to hear from, like, your seven-year-old. But that's that's an obvious question for a a kid who drives around in the backseat of of a car in Los Angeles and sees people sleeping on the streets and sees people and knows kids that, you know, don't have what he has. And so I said, well, I mean, why, why do you ask Elvis? And he said, cause, cause um, he said, so-and-so said that rich people don't care about people. Right. So he had overheard an adult, a modern adult liberal saying rich people don't care about people. And all my son wanted to know is if we cared about people. <laughs> <laughs> because he was told by an adult or he heard from an adult that rich people don't care about people. That was the whole, you know, anti whatever movement that probably started in Berkeley, but it probably. ended up in Wall Street. What, what, what was it called where they hated the one percenters? It was the, uh, oh God. Yeah. Uh, why am I? Uh, what I'm, was it called? March on Wall Street or something? Uh, it was, here, look, look it up. This is embarrassing, Bob. We should know this. Oh, uh, God. You know, I smoked a lot of tinfoil. You have no excuse. I have no excuse at all. I didn't do any of that stuff. I was. What, what was it? I'm going to tell was, you right now. Yeah. Uh, you were, we're just men over 50. That's what it is, Bob. <laughs> I wasn't sleeping in the park to protest it. But so uh, I said, well, I mean, you know, we're we're comfortable but then i didn't want him to be this kind of have this cartoon black and white vision that i see all over america i said you know Elvis, um we're born into privilege because we're white and he said really and i said yeah this is before all the white privilege stuff started this like four years ago and i said but we can screw it up and be have nothing or you can you can work hard and, and have something. And then guess what? When you have something, you can share it with other people. Right? Right. And, and that's what I try to do. That's what, you know, Uncle Ron tries to do. That's what Anthony tries to do. That's what we all try to do. Yeah, we're all very fortunate. And we had a leg up on so many people in the society. And how do you make it right? You, you do the things that we're doing. We have the music school and we have the food program. That's what we do. 
right? That's a practical, general statement of how me and my friends live. So the idea is to give a, a real general real answer not a bullshit answer like i could have said oh no we're not rich or i could have said yeah we're rich what who doesn't like it right or you could say you know what i mean but a seven-year-old deserves an answer and that was a question that you it's kind of a nice story because the the question you were you're all those red flags went up in your brain but actually the root of the question was really quite sweet yeah that it came from this thing that because he i think he always knew that we were kind of lucky right? Nobody likes to say I'm rich, but you know, the, you're fortunate and that whatever. And you're, not, you're fortunate. I always think, yeah, I worked hard. So, and I, I, I learned how to kind of navigate the business world since I've been sober, but I come from white privilege. I mean, it's like, it would have been impossible to come from, from a reservation, say, on the people who really own this land or from Watts or from it'd be just because I know I'm not, I'm not really the hardest worker. Like one of the ways you get out of poverty in America is education to play the education system. Well, and I just don't do that well. So I probably wouldn't have made it to where I made it. I know that it's, there's white privilege in this society. I mean, anybody that says there isn't is just delusional. Well, I keep, but, I, I'm thinking about your song anymore. Like I keep thinking about as you're yeah. talking, I'm thinking about what anymore is talking about back in 1987. I think. That, yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, about looking at yourself, about seeing what's around you. Um, you got to see, and my, and racism is in color on that record, right? That was uh, a, a song that I wrote because I saw it. There's a thing called KCET. It's like the PBS thing. I saw this report on this um, on this black real estate agent that had was retiring. He was an elder and he was respected. So ten minute thing about him, and he was a black real estate agent in Inglewood and Compton and you know South Beverly Hills and Culver City. And what he did when the Equal Housing Amendment passed in the mid '60s or whatever. He would pick neighborhoods. This guy was a fucking genius. He would pick neighborhoods he knew were purposely racist, and he would fund a black family to buy a home on that block so that all the white flight would begin. And then he would buy the houses <laughs> and sell them at a profit to the new up-and-coming black community. He literally changed Inglewood. That's where I live, right by the forum. And I remember, so I'm watching this documentary on television and I'm like, oh my God, that's what happened to us. And I remember it and I documented it in the song Colorblind that the first black family, the Johnsons that moved into our block, my dad put our house up for sale like within a week, right? And, and then I realized it was all this really smart black real estate agent guys. Yeah. Plan. Pretty I good. I loved it. I fucking loved it. Yeah. Pretty, yeah. I, I, not, yeah. Well, I mean, and now I'm thinking about the, the, the opening song on Beautiful Mess, which is that sort of like, I think my dad was a racist, right? That's yeah. Oh, yeah. He was. I think my dad was a racist. Or maybe he was just an ignorant who knows. Well, he got all black people stole from you And he didn't like Mexicans He didn't care for Jews, no, no But still, I wish he was alive today So we could go off to a Dodger game and talk oh, oh, oh. 
Well, I tell him what I believe And he just sit there and listen to me and then change Because blood is thicker than water Oh, yeah, blood is thicker than water At least that's what they say Racism means a lot of things nowadays. It's almost like this loaded thing. My dad, you know, and I, so here's the thing about white privileged uh, society. My sisters and I go to the best schools. We get the best education. We get taught how to think and what to think about, like David Foster Wallace talks about. And my dad is saying all these crazy racist things in the house, right? Immediately, like at 10 years old, I remember thinking, like, he, I, he said something, and it was just another in the long line of racial stig. It's most like racial stereotypes that he had. And I just sat in my bedroom, and I was just like, everything he thinks is not true. Because <laughs> one of my dad's best friends was this, guy, was this Jewish guy, Lou Leibowitz. He wasn't rich. He didn't have any money. He was, he was like a normal guy. So this idea that the Jews got all the money, like, well, Lou, Lou Leibowitz does it. <laughs> like, it's right in front of you. He's your fucking friend. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then he would say, Mexicans are lazy. They need to take a siesta. It's like the Mexicans are the hardest working people in our society. Anybody with half a brain can see that. Right. Still to this day, 50 years later. Nobody's kinder, more, more thorough, more hardworking than, than Hispanic people. I, I, I've watched it my whole life, right? And my dad says that they're lazy. It doesn't even make any sense. The third one was black people steal from you. You got to watch your wallet around black people. No black people ever stole from me. What are you talking about? I go to school with black kids. They're great. I play sports with black kids. What are you talking about? So I could see at 10 years old that these racial, racist stereotypes my father was saying were not true. And I was, and the spell was broken. Right. But let me tell you something. And I want people to understand how, what's, what's happening in our society and why. If I go to a poor, underfunded, shitty school in West Virginia and my dad has those statements made in the house and I have no other uh, way of understanding the world or, or comprehending the world. I don't know how to think and I don't know what to think about, like what most of American schooling is like. I adopt his racism. I'm telling you. And it just repeats and it repeats and it repeats. And you're seeing that. You're seeing that rise up. And it's because of our education system. I really believe that. I believe... But, weird, but here's the weird America thing. America is... How about this? America is 23rd in primary education. Yeah. 23rd. And our, and our state is 47th. <laughs> you know I'm what my teacher, dad would man. say about that. I'm a, I mean, <laughs> look, but, but, but I mean, I, I know, and believe me, I, you know this because you came to my classroom. I teach college students and they come to my, um, to my class and some, and a lot of them, I mean, they're amazing ones, but a lot of them are pretty, pretty challenged in terms of writing a sentence. 
Yeah, and that um, starts in, I hate to tell you, that starts in third grade and fourth grade and fifth grade. That doesn't start in, in high school. No, 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 no. No, that, that's pounded so, in. And, and every time, and I always say, American bureaucracy has never met a problem it couldn't make worse, <laughs> right? So what standardized testing right. did was just make the system worse. Right. Right? I went to Elvis's open house this year before the shutdown, and uh, and the, the funny thing, I got a 30-minute presentation, about 17 minutes of it was on the uh, testing week, the standardized testing week, and what the rules will be, and what da 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 and what will be expected in the standardized testing time, and I was like, you know, I'm a punk rocker, I said, you know, what if we don't give a fuck about standardized testing? I want to know who you are, and and what you believe in and how, what your theories and what your education background and what, where you come from. I want to know about you. You're teaching my kid for a year. I don't give a fuck about the schedule for standardized testing. Right. And all the other parents, one a parent plotted. I was like, am I the only one that'll speak up here? <laughs> like, Probably. Like, we, don't, we don't need to go into that anymore. We've only got like seven more minutes left. Are you going to tell us about yourself? Right, and then ended up that that wasn't a very good fit, and um, he he got he got kicked out of that class and moved to another class. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that well, you know, uh, in terms of I know you have to probably you probably have to go. Yeah, I gotta get the kids you to bed. Go, um, but I every time I talk to you, I always I remember the story you told me about Joe Strummer. You were with him in a casino and he pulled out yeah, a, Vegas, a chip, right? And there was like a London calling was on the chip and he said to you, we're living in the end of time. We're living Thelonious. in the ends of time, Thelonious. I think and that's I, where we I are now. I be thrilled. Well, it's the, it's the jack, blackjack table at Hard Rock Hotel. Right. On the gambling site, you can put it on Paul Simonon smashing the bass on stage that's on okay. the cover of London Calling. That's where, the, that's where you put your chips, right? For playing blackjack. And he was like, and I thought I, you know, because he was kind of, he called it like lost in the wilderness. Like he got into this place where he thought nobody appreciated him and nobody really knew anything about him and his music had been lost and the clash had been lost. And this was in the middle of that lost in the wilderness. So I thought it would make him happy that the clash is on a betting thing. And he's like, we're living in the ends of time. So <laughs> well, I mean, Bob, honestly, as, as, as a 50 year old man, I have to tell you, a lot of things don't mean anything to me anymore, but you still mean the world to me. Your music has meant oh. so much to me, man. So, oh, uh, Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens. We're going to play some shows. I know that as soon as COVID's over. Well, come on up to the north. Yeah. Is a, it was that place we used to play all the time there anymore? What was it called? Berkeley Square. Is that still uh, Berkeley there? Square. I saw Soundgarden there. Uh, Berkeley Square <laughs> with the meat puppets. Oh um, wow! Back in '87, yeah, uh, that's that's gone and that's slim. because Soundgarden was on SST their yeah. first album. Yeah, Soundgarden with the Meat Puppets. Um, they were both SST bands. I saw the, I saw them there. That was amazing. Uh, but no, Louder uh, Than Love. It's called. Wasn't it called Louder Than Love? Louder the album? Than Love. Yeah, and they they were so loud. They sounded like Sabbath that night. Like they yeah, were, they were like I always thought they sounded like Sabbath. <laughs> God, they were loud. Yeah, I love uh, that band when it started out. I wasn't a big fan of it later on. But. No, no, but that was amazing. But I bet you love the Meat Puppets. Oh, always. Yeah, yeah. I play my kids the Meat Puppets. They think it's like, they don't think of it as like rock music. They think of it as like some other, it's almost like, it's more, Meat Puppets have, 
the meat puppets influence, whether it came through Kurt or just by, by them themselves, it permeates a lot of music. Yeah. Like I, 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 I hear pieces of meat puppets in things and ironically in video game music. Interesting. Because they're like, you know, that's on the whistling song or whatever. Of course, on Meat Puppets 2, right? Or is it Up on the Sun? Yeah. Maybe Up on the Sun, yeah. Yeah. I just, those first four albums, it's just like, it has a bounce to it and a playfulness to it that not many bands have. And I always, when I talk about music, I don't know how to describe music like chords or PGO or whatever that means. I just say, this is where the song needs to open up like a Meat Puppets chord. Yeah. Like the Meat Puppets always had this part that just opened up like a flower. Like, rah, rah. Yeah. And, uh, and so it's one of the, my musical points of reference. I say, we need something that like opens up like a flower, like a Meat Puppets chord. I call it a Meat Puppets chord. And you know, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. The meat puppets. Well, of course, they, they were as jaunty as they were twisted. Yeah. Yeah, it was perfect. And, and then uh, President of the United States of America came along and ripped them off and made a million dollars. All right, I got to go get All right, man. Bed. Keep in touch. I will, brother. Forest, there he is. God, I love that guy. Love talking to him. Always so much fun. And uh, we go all over the place. And uh, I think we, I think we always land the plane. I think we do. Uh, here's what you should do: pick up Thelonious Monster's new album, Oh That Monster. And then, if you don't know the band, just reverse engineer. Go go backwards in time, and listen to each album. You'll end up in 1986 with Baby, You're Bumming My Life Out in a Supreme Fashion, and it will be quite the journey. Or start with Baby and end up with Monster. doesn't matter to me. I just think that uh, that's a discography that needs to be in your life. The new album is fantastic. A jolt of, uh, of utter brilliance. You're going to love it. A jolt of utter brilliance. You're going to love it. I promise you. Uh, you can visit Thelonious Monster online at... And this is no big surprise. Thelouniousmonster.com. Go there. Find out what's happening with the band and, uh, and stay informed. You can visit me online, alexgreenonline.com. Find out what's going on with me. Uh, of course, I do talk about it incessantly here. So I could save you a click of a few buttons <laughs> uh, with my endless, uh, endless self-obsession. Uh, I mean, why even have a website if you have a podcast where you talk about yourself nonstop. Well, because uh, divide and conquer. That's why. Stereo Embers the podcast is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, leave a comment, give us a rating, tell all your friends. We would appreciate it. You can find me on Twitter at Embers Editor. You can find me on Instagram at Embers Podcast or you can email me editor at Stereo Embers Magazine. Dot com. Visit Bombshell Radio at bombshellradio.com. Find out what makes us tick. There we go. There's all the housekeeping items knocked out one after the other. Let's take a longer listen. And by the way, before we do, 
I want to say thank you, as always, for you continuing to tune into this program week in and week out. Sometimes I'm doing two episodes a week because I'm not, uh, I'm not dating. So there's time. You might get a little more of the show uh, as, my, uh, as my dating life dries up. The podcast life, well, that increases. I wonder if I can figure out a way to have both. I'm going to work on that. That's my, that's my project for the next few months, a fulfilling personal life and an active professional life. Let's see if I can pull it off. I think I can. Uh, let's take a longer listen, but thank you again for listening. I do appreciate it. You guys are the best. Let's take a fuller listen to Buy Another Gun. This is Thelonious Monster from Oh That Monster. Enjoy this, and I'll see you next time right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast only on Bombshell Radio. So this is how it's done Buy another gun Can't rob backpack You can wear the school But fake resistance that No one listens to Hashtags are never gonna save a soul Take no more. Gonna take my kids and run off to Spain. 